Hello. I'd like to welcome you all to this Forum for European Philosophy event at the LSE. Uh, so this evening's event is a dialogue entitled, Are We Stewards of the Earth? Uh, and tonight's speakers are Dr. Simon James, who is Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at the University of Durham, and Dr. Jennifer Gabris, who is Reader in Sociology at Goldsmiths College. Um, and apologies uh, for those of you who were um, expecting Claire Colbrook, because that was what was published on our original leaflet. Unfortunately, Claire couldn't uh, make it from the U.S., um, so the, the format of the event is that each of the speakers will speak to the question for about 15 minutes, um, and then that will open into a dialogue. And um, for the last half an hour, uh, we'll take some questions from the floor. I'd like to remind you that the event will be recorded for a podcast. Um, so, Simon, if you would like to... Sure. Go ahead. I do have a PowerPoint presentation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much for turning up, especially on a Monday evening. And uh, thank you, Danielle, for the introduction. Uh, the title then, Are We Stewards of the Earth, got me thinking about um, nature, first of all. Uh, and I should begin, I guess, by saying that quite a few people don't like the term nature, for various reasons, many of them very good reasons, right? Some people think that merely to use the word nature suggests that we humans aren't parts of nature, um, which they take to be false. Um, now, we can discuss the, the topic of nature later on, if you like, but I'm worried that if we, if we begin discussing it right now, we're not going to stop, and I'm not going to get round to saying what I want to say, which um, doesn't presuppose any particular conception of what nature is. Um, so for the sake of convenience, I'm going to be using the term nature in what might be called the David Attenborough sense. Right? So by nature, I mean the sorts of things right, that you might see in a wildlife documentary like Life on Earth or a Discovery Channel TV show. I mean uh, forests, tundras, deep ocean trenches, that sort of environment and their inhabitants, rather than shopping malls and uh, bowling alleys and car parks. Okay. So again, as I say, we can discuss that later on if you like. But hopefully you have an idea of what I mean by nature. So what, what kinds of value does nature have? Several different kinds. First of all, reference to stewardship suggests uh, the stewardship tradition, according to which nature has value because, basically, God made it, and we therefore have associated duties to take care of nature on God's behalf. You could call that a certain kind of, I don't know, religious or spiritual or theological value. Another sort of value nature has. Um, nature has value in itself, many people believe, regardless of any connections to either God or human beings. That's often referred to uh, 
by environmental thinkers as intrinsic value. However, the word intrinsic value, the phrase intrinsic value, has lots of different meanings that aren't always disentangled. Now, this evening, I don't mean to deny that nature has value in either of those senses. That's not my point. I don't want to deny that nature has intrinsic value or religious or spiritual value. Instead, I want to focus on a third kind of value that nature has. Value uh, that it has on account of providing us human beings with certain benefits. Okay, and I'll call this anthropocentric value. So, whether or not nature has value because it's God's creation or value in itself, it certainly has value because it provides us with certain benefits. And that's the sort of value which I will be focusing. Now, when environmentalists say that nature has value because it benefits us humans, they typically express themselves in a particular way. They typically talk in terms of ecosystem services. Ecosystem services. The basic notion is that nature has value because it provides us with so many valuable ecosystem services. And they, these services come in uh, several varieties. There are supporting services. These are the very basic services on which all the other services depend. Things like photosynthesis, soil formation, uh, seed dispersal. Secondly, nature has value because it provides us with provisioning services, uh, things we get out of it, like fuel, firewood, and, uh, I don't know, coal, uranium, provisioning services. Thirdly, nature has value because it provides us with regulating services. It helps to keep certain ecological, biological, geological cycles and processes in check. Think, for example, of the way that vegetation helps to regulate the water cycle or can reduce erosion. These would be considered regulating services. Finally, um, ecosystems are believed to provide us with certain cultural services, right? by, I don't know, fortifying our resolve or honing our aesthetic uh, capacities or, I don't know, providing us with uh, religious symbols or shaping our senses of who we are or even just the sheer pleasure you get from being out in nature. These are considered to be cultural services. Um, and those who adopt this approach typically point out that nature is you know, tremendously useful, provides us with lots of very uh, valuable ecosystem services. In a 1997 paper, Robert Costanza and his colleagues estimated that the total economic value of just three of the biosphere's ecosystem services is approximately 16 to 54 trillion US dollars per year. And that financial value is supposed to give us some indication of how, how useful nature, or what they call ecosystems, is to us. Now this approach may seem very anthropocentric, right? And it is, but researchers who think in terms of ecosystem services 
don't necessarily, and often don't, deny that nature has other value. So take Tony Juniper, for example, prominent uh, environmentalist, um, former director of Friends of the Earth, I think, and um, advisor to Prince Charles, etc. He says, well, nature provides us with these valuable ecosystem services, but it also has intrinsic value. Nonetheless, when environmentalists think about the value nature has because it benefits us, they tend to express their claims in terms of ecosystem services. If you go to the United Nations Environment Programme, uh, DEFRA, the Environmental Protection Agency in the States, uh, the Worldwide Fund for Nature, all the talk, or almost all of it, is about ecosystem services. The assumption being when nature has value, because it benefits us humans, it has value as a service provider. But is that true? Is this assumption here true? That when nature has value, because it benefits us humans, it has value as a service provider. Must remember not to point to things if it's my podcast is being made. Okay. Um, well, let's think. You may remember that a few years ago, the government came up with an ill-conceived plan to sell off all of England's publicly owned forests. And there was, you'll recall, a huge public outcry. In response, the government set up uh, an independent panel on forestry, which issued a formal call for people's views about forests. They asked people... What do forests mean to you? Why do you value forests? Why are they important to you? And this elicited over 42,000 responses. Um, now, as you know, that story ended with the government having to back down. But what I'd like to focus on today are some of the responses to that call for views. Now, many of the responses right, appeal to the you know, the service value, if you like, of forests, to their perceived role in mitigating climate change, buoying up the national economy, that sort of thing. However, many of the respondents pointed to a different kind of benefit, a different kind of value. Here's some examples. Um, forests were said to be integral to our inherited beliefs and values, part of our nation's identity, part of our cultural heritage. These have to be looked at with a critical eye, right? But uh, let's do that later on. At the heart of everything I love most, an essential part of the social well-being of England. Sounds very Daily Mail, that one. Part of me, where I feel at home. So, what's going on here? Well, to understand what's going on, I think you have to make a distinction between two general kinds of value. On the one hand, there is value, uh, instrumental value. Something has this when it has value as a means to an end. Um, let me see if my prop has worked. Yes, here we are. So, for example, this £10 note, a real £10 note, is of merely instrumental value to me. I don't care about this particular £10 note. If you were to replace it with two £5 notes or ten £1 coins, I'd be quite happy. Its value is purely down to its use. 
it's valuable solely as a means to an end, because I can use it to, you know, buy goods, etc. Sometimes when nature has value, it has this sort of value, instrumental value to us human beings. Second kind of value, however, is what's called constitutive value. And something has this sort of value when it is of value because of the part it plays in some whole, because of the contribution it makes to some whole. So, for example, um, my leg, right? My leg is, I mean, it is useful, right? It's a very useful leg, but its value is not simply down to its use. It is of value to me because it is part of me. Um, if Buddhists and others are correct, then compassion is of value, not because it's a means to living a good life, but because it's part of, Buddhists claim, an essential part of a good life. Now, the example of my leg and the example of compassion are very different, right? But both are things that are claimed to have constitutive value. They have the value they do, it's argued, because of the parts they play in certain holes. So if we return to the uh, responses from the independent panel on forestry's call for views, first thing you'd note, I guess, is that there are many different kinds of claim here. Some respondents appeal to national identity, others to cultural heritage, social well-being, feeling of being at home, lots of different things. However, what's interesting, I think, is that the language of constitution, the language of parts and wholes, runs throughout. All of these respondents, the ones I've quoted at least, seem to value forests not, or not just because they're useful, not just because they're of instrumental value to us humans, but because they are parts of certain wholes that are of value to us humans. The implication is that for these people, forests had not merely instrumental value, but constitutive value. So what to conclude from this? Well, in some cases, I would argue, nature is of value to us because it is part, perhaps in some instances, an essential part of some valuable whole. In such cases, nature's value to us cannot be adequately expressed in terms of means and ends and provision of services. Now, as I said at the start of this talk, the ecosystem services approach, a thoroughly instrumentalist approach, is becoming tremendously, almost overwhelmingly popular. More and more, it seems to be how environmentalists are speaking. But I, want, I worry about this. I worry that as the popularity of the ecosystem services approach grows and grows, people will be more inclined to overlook nature's constitutive value the value it has when it is part of something that we value. And this is, I believe, a particular concern because, although this is something I won't have time to argue now, 
but because when nature is of constitutive value to us, it is often of very great value to us. When people regard some particular place, for instance, as being part of who they are, or integral to their form of life, that place is often of very great value to them. The truth of the matter is, in my view, put very well by Lewis McNeese. World is crazier and more of it than we think. Incorrigibly plural. Quite so. And the same applies, I would say, to the historical, political, mythic, religious and personal values we find in the world around us. Many of those values cannot be adequately conceived in terms of means and ends and the provision of services. Thank you. Thanks very much, Simon. Over to you, Jennifer. We have a musical intermission, just in case you're <laughs> worried about that. There we go. Um, okay, well, thanks very much for the invitation. Um, it's an interesting context in which to present this work. I'm not going to talk about um, relatively sort of religious aspect of stewardship, um, but instead <laughs> situate the work within an overall project I have on citizen sensing right now um, and to draw on some material from a book that I've written um, called Program Earth, which will be out uh, next spring 2016. I'm not sure what's crackling, but uh, could be the ghosts. Apparently there's ghosts in the, uh, in the communication system. So I wanted to talk tonight about um, animals as sensors and to think about the ways in which animals are tracked and how that helps us understand the problems that science sets up as problems of gathering information in relation to environmental change. So to do that, I'm going to start, if I can do this, the video, playing in the background here. So your daily weather forecast may have been brought to you in part by southern elephant seals. Um, in the southern ocean, seals tagged with conductivity, temperature, depth, satellite relay data loggers, which is a bit of a mouthful, but you can see a picture there, capture a detailed picture of ocean waters. Sensors travel along with seals to map their dive profiles and to gather a previously inaccessible set of oceanographic data from ocean surface to depths down to nearly 2,000 meters. So you can see the seals are diving with sensors attached and they're gather gathering a profile of temperature um, and depth in relation to ocean waters. Based on these foraging patterns, which is what they're doing when they're diving, 
um, then you can see the sort of uh, differences in um, not only temperature but also sea ice formation, the likely movement of fronts on the Antarctic circumpolar current, um, as well as general circulation of weather patterns. So the data gathered here from SEALs are then um, relaying out to satellites, Argo satellite systems, which consist of three satellites and three orbital planes, that then filter into the institutions of environmental science to form these dive profiles, as well as climatological data sets, um, and also informing weather forecasts and your nightly weather reports. So within this system, there's a kind of distributed sensing technology that is telling us about an organism, that is telling us about the environment it inhabits, and is telling us about the changes in that environment. Sensors such as these are increasingly used to study um, the tracking of organisms and often involve the direct outfitting of animals with sensor backpacks and radio collars in order to understand movement and migration. So these sensors are a part of a latest wave of computational enabled sensors that um, help to understand uh, animals in their environments, everything from badgers to elephant seals to storks and more. These are seen as key technologies for understanding animals that are under threat. Um, and the data gathered on animal movements can help to um, provide profiles of how then to manage uh, the environments that these animals inhabit. So in the context of uh, this event tonight, Are We Stewards of the Earth? Um, I want to sort of think through the kinds of monitoring practices that uh, emerge in relation to studying tagged animals um, the problem of collecting environmental data and how that structures our relationship to environments as a, a question of stewardship here very much within a scientific um, modality. What does it mean to understand environments and organisms as a problem of gathering information? Um, and how does that help us understand the melus of, of, of organisms? So um, animals are on the move, or they always have been, or, but their movements and migrations are emerging as different and more detailed events through these tracking studies. Why do organisms make these journeys, and how do these journeys shift the kind of territories and understandings of environments? By studying animals as they're moving um, around, and here you can see a very um, extensive study by Barbara Block and others in 2011, where they're looking at marine uh, predator movements within the Pacific, um, and here's a kind of extensive composite map of the different movements made by these uh, large predators. So by studying organisms in this way, we can begin to understand their feeding and mating patterns, um, why they might move in response to different events, um, even whether there might be uh, considerable um, kind of environmental changes about to occur. So this is seen as the emerging field of movement ecology, uh, which allows um, a kind of... Uh, addressing of unanswered questions in ecology through animal tracking. Um, and this is largely, as I've suggested, a, a question of gathering um, information. For instance, you could also study birds um, that are tracked to understand how they might be moving in relation to winds, the cues that they're picking up in relation to atmospheric conditions, the flight paths they take, as well as even their heart rates and wing beats, um, and to understand why then they might be uh, taking migration routes that they do, which would be a way of turning the animals themselves into uh, sensors. So just to kind of provide a bit more detail about what I mean by tracking animals. Um, the, the technologies used to track animals typically involve radio and satellite telemetry, um, including mobile phone signals, GPS, Argos satellite systems, RFID tags, and data loggers. 
And most of these um, tracking devices are attached to the external bodies of um, organisms as collars, backpacks, and here you can see even epoxied antennae um, in the case of insects and smaller organisms. Um, but some of these tracking instruments are also injected subcutaneously, which you've probably seen with um, the famous sort of BBC cat study um, where they had them wearing collars, but also, you know, have these um, sort of chips. Most animals now are chipped, aren't they? Um, so the monitoring technologies are increasingly miniature, and many more animals are, are monitored, and there's even a kind of drive within movement ecology to um, track animals throughout their entire life cycle. So where an organism would be born, basically live in its entire life, um, being tracked so that it, life cycle ecology could be understood. And this is a way um, to address what are seen to be the unanswered questions of ecology, but also to create a kind of sensor network that is at once the kind of sensors that the organisms are wearing, um, as well as their patterns and the way that that is providing a, a kind of sensing of environments. So I think this raises a really interesting question about how the collection of data is seen to be critical to managing and responding to environmental change. The proliferation of more detailed and more um, real-time sensor data is meant to provide fundamentally new insights into ecological processes that will allow us to better un um, understand and manage um, environments. Monitoring in this sense is a practice that is undertaken to protect organisms, um, and this is in the context of obviously what's known as the sixth um, great extinction event that we're living through now, as well as the decline in great migrations, um, which are all occurring at an unprecedented rate, also as food chains and environments are collapsing. And the um, uh, sort of um, suggestion that by collecting more environmental data, organisms might be better protected is a kind of common theme within many of these scientific as well as citizen scientific projects. Um, and the um, Pacific Predators project that I um, showed earlier suggests that by having more information, publics will be inspired to uh, respond and to um, have a kind of goodwill toward organisms by having more information about them. So more data is meant to stir conservation efforts, inform policy, and stir publics into action. I think that's an interesting way of um, organizing uh, a kind of process of environmental stewardship through scientific study, through data collection, um, and through citizen science, which would be an interesting point of conversation, um, I think, tonight. Also, within the context of creative practice projects, you have people developing somewhat speculative and even ironic approaches to the notion of um, tracking animals. Here you can see, um, if you're not familiar with this extreme green gorilla project by Machiko Nita, a Korean designer um, artist, She's developed an animal me messaging service that would theoretically, this is a speculative project, but operate through messages being carried around the world by organisms in their migrations. So um, if you were to send a text message, um, it would occur through an implanted RFID tag, for instance, on birds that could start from a sanctuary in London and carry the message over to New York um, through a kind of hacking um, of their usual uh, migration um, sort of uh, tracking technology. So across these scientific, citizen scientific and artistic practices, um, just to kind of end in relation to a, a consideration of the, the theoretical aspects of this um, problem. The ways in which animals are becoming sensor nodes and part of extended sensor networks 
raises questions about how we understand animals as they inhabit their environments or their melus. Um, and here I'm using uh, kind of theoretical concepts from French philosophers Gilbert Simondon and Georges Canguilhem, who in varying ways, um, uh, but uh, sort of shared ways, are looking at the ways in which organisms and individuals encounter their melus as problems. Um, which I think these sensing technologies, in a way, are attempting to understand. How are organisms making their way in the world? How are they surviving? And what are the patterns of that survival? These philosophers suggest that this is a kind of inventive or creative encounter. One could argue, in relation to uh, sensing technologies, that there may be a tendency to understand organisms as uh, basically proceeding through a kind of cost-benefit analysis of their environments. And this often occurs when you um, see a sort of um, studying of the patterns of movement um, and animals are seen to be making a particular decision about where food is or where the best wind pattern is, how they can conserve their energy. And it's a kind of calculative decision process that seemed to kind of describe essentially what organisms are doing. This is a way in which I think we've made our um, environmental problems, problems of information and data collection, that may not necessarily map well onto what organisms are up to, um, that may actually, in a sense, uh, delimit or diminish the kind of inventive responses that they are having to their environments. Um, and I wonder, in this respect, whether the process of managing environments might be a way that we're not capturing this kind of uh, plurality, as Simon suggested, um, of inhabiting worlds, because we've made um, environmental problems a problem of capturing um, information and data. Of course, this gets to a, a, a kind of, um, I guess you could say, concern, if not critique, that um, George Kendallham is of a, a sort of science where he suggests that science typically um, presents a sort of universal melu um, for understanding its problems. But in fact, as a proper melu for, the comportment, um, for comportment in life, the melu of man's sensory and technical values does not in itself have more reality than the melus proper to the woodlouse or the gray mouse. So this is a quite an interesting way of thinking about what is the kind of world of a woodlouse or a gray mouse? And by sensing and tracking those organisms, have we necessarily definitively arrived at an understanding of those organisms because we've tracked their every movement, even if we do it from birth to death? Um, or, in some way, have we maybe established uh, a universal um, melu of sensing and tagging that we use to understand un environmental problems, but which um, might actually delimit those um, inventive responsive to worlds. So I would, I guess I would end in with a kind of, um, through the clicking, <laughs> um, a suggestion that organisms are not merely decoding their environments um, in a kind of cost-benefit analysis. And we've heard a bit about um, value here earlier, which I think is interesting conversations to be made um, about these um, ways of structuring environmental problems, but that they might be encountering their worlds in many different inventive ways, and it's that kind of inventive encounter which could also be um, a way of thinking about environmental problems. And so I would suggest that we reverse or reversion um, environmental stewardship, not as something that we, as singular humans, 
are deciding, implementing, and managing for organisms, um, but is something that's a multiply experienced set of problems that we might um, understand by thinking about the different ways in which these organisms inhabit their worlds. So um, that's to say that uh, that's a very abbreviated version of a chapter um, forthcoming in a book called Program Earth, um, where I look at this problem in more um, detail um, as part of a section on wild sensing. There's also sections on urban um, and pollution sensing, and it's within the larger uh, project of citizen sense um, that will be running through to 2017. And if you want more information, you can go on the, the website there. Thanks. Thanks very much, Jennifer, um, and sorry about the technical difficulties. Um, so a couple of things struck me that you were both touching on. One of them is um, the role of technology and the role of um, technology in approaching environmental problems and the influence that the kind of methodologies and instruments we adopt and, and the instruments we use has on, on the very nature of the problem, has on our understanding of the problem. I think you were saying, Jennifer, that in a sense these technologies offer us, offer us so much data, um, but they don't necessarily offer us good ways or sufficient ways of understanding the problems. Um, where do we go from here? I mean, are you, are you both saying that technology is a problem here and that kind of instrumental methodologies are problematic? Does that mean we should um, not use them? Or does this just mean that we need to be more judicious about how we use them? I think um, I'd say, um, I'm not sure about technology, but I think in instrumentalist methods are, mm. are problematic in, in the sense that there's nothing in inherently wrong with them, but I think there needs to be awareness of what they leave out, what you can't capture in, in instrumentalist terms, which um, is rather similar, I think, to what you were saying, Jennifer, about capturing um, or understanding Mm. Yeah, and I think um, I, mean, I would sort of also suggest that instrumentality, um, another way of looking at it is not that it's necessarily good or bad, but that it um, creates very particular ways that we encounter worlds. So if we've decided that gathering data about organisms and the way that they move is the best way to understand environments, then that will also inform how we understand stewardship, what it means to protect environments, that it is a problem of data or of calculating, um, in your case, um, you know, the costs of the services or the value of the services that um, um, environments provide. So it's a way that we're deciding we want to live in the world um, and to encounter environmental problems. Um, and I guess I make that distinction because I'm very much interested in practice. Uh, and that's a way of practicing environmental problems. That's a way of deciding these are the way that problems are going to be encountered so that we can do something about them. And um, what I'm hoping to do in, in this writing is then to open up a set of questions about how might we think about those problems differently and how might that then inform the way that we could develop alternative, potentially inventive environmental practices. And that's very much informed, since we are in the context of a philosophy uh, discussion, by um, Alfred North Whitehead and Isabel Stengers, who are very much kind of invested in more inventive problem making, is their, um, particularly Stengers' uh, line. Um, and 
I mean, I find that quite interesting with her latest work as well, because she's now taken up kind of more um, political uh, register and understanding of practices. So not um, either good or bad necessarily, but, you know, how do we want to be in the world? What kind of worlds do we want to make? Right. Um, so, so the title of the event was Are We Stewards of the Earth? And it was a title that we picked kind of because it was quite provocative, that this idea of stewardship obviously has a biblical heritage. Um, and perhaps the biblical heritage seems less important, but somehow we still keep hold of this idea that we are here to protect or manage environments in some kind of way. And that in, in, in some way, this means that we are perhaps superior to other uh, forms of, of life. Do you think stewardship should, should be a starting point, or do you think this is a concept which is outdated and we need to move on? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I think it's, uh, I, I think it's a, in part an empirical question, isn't it? How, how effective talk of stewardship is going to be in different, different parts of the world. I imagine some parts of the world would probably be very effective. Um, uh, um, I guess it, it, does, it does encourage a different way of... I, I think stewardship is, I mean, looking after... I'm trying to think of it, a dictionary definition would be like looking after property on behalf of someone, you know, so looking after the world on behalf of God, for example, uh, she's been charged to look after it. And that seems to be a different relation from, from management. Maybe, uh, maybe, it's, maybe it's better. Um, I don't know. It's certainly different, I would say. I think um, uh, I haven't heard much talk of ecosystem services, for example, in the context of stewardship. Uh, but um, I think of the Pope's encyclical the other day, whether they yeah, met, maybe yeah. mentioned both of them. I can't recall, but um, I think there's, there's certainly different families of practices, management practices, and stewardship. I mean, I think the Pope's encyclical is an interesting example because um, scientists are very much seeing this as a way to get uh, you know, over a billion people potentially on board um, by having a kind of return to an understanding of a Christian imperative to look after the earth um, and kind of very much attempting to draw that out of um, Old Testament texts. I mean, I wonder at the same time whether stewardship is something that uh, is in need of revisiting because, as you mentioned, it's very much tied to particular notions of property rooted potentially in agricultural traditions. Um, and what kinds of practices might we, you know, be um, sort of uh, thinking of developing now in a kind of inventive way? Is a kind of old return to an Old Testament, and I'm not a sort of religious scholar, as both of you are, but is that the best language to, to be using? Um, or, um, and, you know, the sort of Pope deciding to use this, this language as a way to... Um, uh, encourage people to take responsibility for climate change, but then very much ending up in a, a message about consumption, um, that we should consume less, um, and that we need to have a life of, of greater sobriety, uh, really, I think, was his, um, where he arrived. Um, what kind of stewardship is that, a kind of call to consume less and, and um, be more sort of moderate in our ways of living in the world? Um, and might this be a space in which we could sort of think creatively about a whole range of different ways in which we're um, encountering environments, uh, not necessarily as singular stewards, but um, any number of other practices? And I guess you could have a 
<clears throat> a secularized version of the stewardship as well, couldn't you, where you are looking after uh, whatever it is you want to look after, but on behalf, not of God, but of future generations, maybe, or something, something of that sort. So that might, um, might have more bite in some parts of the world than a kind of appeals to the Old Testament, for example. But, yeah. yeah, yeah, no, I, th I think that's a, I think that's true. Um, I noticed at the beginning of, of your talk, Simon, that you wanted to distinguish between instrumental value and um, constitutive value. But it seemed that you moved very quickly away from the idea that nature has intrinsic value. Mm. Um, partly because you were talking about um, the ways in which people think about their relationship with the natural world. Um, are we stuck with this kind of anthropocentric framework? Can we move away from it at all, or do we, do we have to keep returning back to the value of nature being the value of our engagement with it? Um, I, I'm optimistic about this. I don't think we're stuck with the anthropocentric framework. And maybe if you think about how people... Um, I mean, a lot of this depends on what you, what you include in the nature category, yeah. right? Yeah. But uh, if you think about um, how people respond to... Uh, animals, right, non-human animals, and they, they would offer, in, in many cases, when you see you know, a donkey or whatever that's being mistreated, right, then obviously there's some, what's bad about that is, it's not entirely dependent on how it affects us humans, not just because it upsets us to see mistreated donkeys, not just because it's bad for the economy and so forth, but because of what happens to the donkey, right, that's why it's a bad thing, because Donkeys are sentient beings, sorry, choking here, sentient beings that can suffer, etc., etc. Um, so I think um, in those sorts of cases, I think people, and certainly many societies, are quite ready to accept um, some form of um, value that doesn't depend on something satisfying or potentially satisfying human interests. Um, and is that grounded in our emotional responses to non-human life, or um, is it grounded in a... Well, I don't know. I mean, a, if you... A more varied set of responses. Well, I think people do often, do often, as a matter of fact, respond to these things in an emotional way. Um, we care about, you know, donkeys, and not about some other creatures, right, because donkeys look, look <laughs> furry and cuddly, etc. But, um, no, I think it's, it's basically grounded in, um, in reason. Yeah, I think it, there's, there are reasons to why we ought to um, care about the welfare of donkeys. So I think even if, you know, Peter Singer's big on this, isn't he? He says um, he doesn't care about animals because he, he's an animal lover or anything like that. He cares about them because it's, you know, this is what reason demands. And um, although I don't, I don't actually buy into Singer's specific position, I agree with him on that, that basic point. I think <laughs> along the same line, something struck me when, when you were talking, Jennifer, which was... Um, when, when you showed the picture of the seals with the sensors, you mentioned firstly that um, some of our weather forecasts um, come from animal sensors, but also that animal sensors provide us data about the animals themselves. So mm -hmm. they seem to be going in two different directions, a kind of anthropocentric use and a use which might feed back into a kind of broader outlook. 
Yeah, I mean, I think very much so. What's interesting, um, and that's why I, I presented potentially a slightly complicated view of, of these sensors. It wasn't to say, oh, this is horrible, you know, look at these animals wearing sensors. Um, we are actually learning a lot about environments through animals um, and other organisms who have uh, sensors. But at the same time, understanding that our environments as informational problems. Um, but what's interesting along the way is that we are gaining so many other um, kind of understandings of ecology and environmental processes by having access to uh, processes and systems um, that aren't normally kind of uh, available to us. So seals diving 2,000 meters through southern oceans, those are very difficult spaces to um, sense and to map and, and to kind of study. Um, and now suddenly you're able to basically have technologies hitch a ride is a term that's often used. Um, you know, and go along with an organism um, and capture data about how they're living in a particular environment. And it's not only telling you about that environment, but how that organism encounters that environment so that the animal itself becomes a sensor of sorts. Um, and you're seeing this with a lot of different, um, different applications. In a sense, it's called biosensing as well, um, where the way that an organism is um, sensing um, its, its environment, becomes, it becomes a kind of sentinel um, organism um, so that you can understand without even having a technology as such, um, but just through the way that the technology is moving with the organism, these different environmental systems. So, I mean, they're using it to understand bird migration, for instance, and the way that birds are choosing to go particular places to rest um, during their migrations um, and where there might be habitat loss. So you can see if they've no longer stopped in the same place that they would normally stop year on year, um, that potentially that's due to habitat loss. And that has then informed um, practice and policy decisions. For instance, there's one conservation effort where they've asked farmers to um, have pop-up habitats where they would maintain their kind of flooded fields at particular times of year in particular locations because they're key places in migration flyways. So um, I think there are interesting ways in which then responses are developing um, in relation to um, the sensing uh, data and sensing processes. So I think it's a, it's a kind of complicated and interesting picture. Um, and um, there's a lot more I think we could do with those kind of attachments of um, technology and organisms. And do you think that changes the way we frame our understanding of the natural world? So it inclines us to think in terms of ecosystems rather than species or individuals? Yeah, I mean, I'm always very informed, for instance, by the work of Donna Haraway and others who suggest there isn't a kind of essential nature um, that's being framed, but there's always kind of nature-culture hybrids that are being put in motion. Um, she's also someone influenced by Whitehead. Um, so again, it's a question of what kind of worlds are we making, not what kind of essential nature are we discovering, but what kinds of natural-cultural relations are we putting into motion. Um, and in that respect, I think this is one way of putting natural-cultural uh, relations into motion, not necessarily framing them as a fixed kind of entity, but saying these are the ways in which we, we want to understand our environmental problems, um, to uh, understand how or organisms are existing in their world. And then, yes, very much seeing those as not just a matter of a select species, but the way that they're actually moving through environments. Yeah. I think that that's, uh, connects up with value as well. I, I mm. think, I mean, there's a danger, isn't there, in, as soon as you mention the word nature, you think of one big thing, or you think of the environment, you know, some giant environment that includes absolutely everything. But mm. I think one thing you brought out was um, that really there are lots of different environments here, and this is one 
case where there is clearly a sort of value which doesn't depend on us. Because you can talk about the value of um, the values uh, that are apprehended by a by an otter or a, or, or a ptarmigan or what have you. Right? These are, I mean, um, when you say that um, you know fast-flowing streams are of value to kingfishers, that's a kind of value that really has nothing to do with us. Right? Um, presumably, a, a kingfisher's life, you know, certain things are lit up as being attractive or as valuable, and certain things aren't. So I guess that's a there could be a connection there with, with value too. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. No, yeah, I, I think definitely, yeah. Um, Shall we take some questions mm -hmm. from the floor? So if you could wait for the microphone uh, to get to you before you start speaking. Take these two first. Um, two very short questions, if I may. Uh, the first one, when I was watching this animal tracking, sensing, Probably totally rational, but I really, at a, a kind of at a sort of intuitive level, at a sort of a sensing level, I had a real issue with privacy. And I wonder, uh, I mean, it sounds really silly. Why should animals have a right to privacy? But it, it did affect me. I, I did, I did wonder about that. And I, I, I do wonder whether there is any kind of literature and any kind of discourse around this. Because what's the difference between this and what you know the NSA does? I mean, you know, there is a weird kind of convergence of kind of going on, which, which, which I think is interesting. Um, and, and the other one is, as I was, when I was listening to uh, this sort of instrumental versus constitutive value, I thought, like, you could make the same argument about the world of work or the economy. And ecology is actually not very special in that sense. Um, I mean, take the markets. You know, we're so glued to the markets. I mean, the markets are right. If the markets, the capital markets say we have to punish the Greek, then we punish the Greek. Um, that's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a law of nature almost. On the other hand, when it comes to ecology, we really know better than nature and we really can manage it. So what's the kind of the role reversal here? And I wonder about that. Hi, thank you for your talk. Uh, Simon, uh, I'm a little bit disturbed by your knowledge of the spiritual that you were referring to. It seems like you have a bit of a blank area there, in particularly uh, regarding Western religions, which are, by their own nature, apocalyptic. So it seems strange to be referring to this value system when their own personal value system on nature is one that they will regard of destroying it all, and their whole philosophy is uh, driven by this notion of their uh, idea of an apocalyptic uh, conclusion to their, their own mandate, which seems like an unhealthy way to, to hand these people any sort of notion or uh, title of uh, helping the environment. It seems like madness, in fact. Do you think it is madness? Thank you. I wasn't aware I'd done that. <laughs> which, which bit of the talk were you referring to? Sorry. Uh, just the fact you, you kept referring to the spiritual and religions and uh, without any real definition, unfortunately, so I had to imply some definition that you were well, concluding to the Western society. I have 15 minutes. But, I mean, I, yeah, that, but that wasn't my main point, though. Really. It wasn't, yeah, but if you're going to talk about something which is inherently dominates the whole world... Uh, and he's also inherently trying to destroy the whole world. It does seem rather important to add that to your talk at some stage. Um, yeah, I Thank you. Yeah, um, you're right that there, 
I mean, it's a huge debate about, of course, about whether Christianity in particular is either, you know, green or whether it's, you know, it's, it's intrinsically opposed to environmental causes. And that would take, you know, I mean, I work on Buddhism. I'm not an expert on Christian theology. And um, I think... You are aware of the apocalypse, they believe. Uh, yes, yeah, some Christians, I believe, believe. Yeah, you know. That is religion. Uh, um, regardless of the not all Buddhists. The actual leadership. Yeah. I'm talking about Christianity. Yeah, I'm, I'm not an expert on Christianity, I'm afraid. You are aware of apocalypse. I know an apocalypse, yes, but I, I'm, not, I'm not convinced that all Christians believe in an okay, apocalypse. Okay. Anyway, that might be getting off the topic. <laughs> Perhaps if you'd like to pick up on, on the other gentleman's questions. I, so I think sure. there's one about... Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I can get to the question about um, privacy. I think it's a really interesting uh, point. There is a small literature looking at surveillance of organisms, um, some of it in relation to webcams. Um, other aspects of that literature is actually in relation to, um, for instance, Sami hunters in Lapland, um, where there is a fair amount of tracking of organisms going on, but often it raises issues in relation to hunting. Um, and so you get kind of... Um, human, non-human, um, indigenous, um, and tourist kind of issues coming up um, because people can actually go online and see where, for instance, reindeer are moving or, or other organisms, and that can increase, um, you know, kind of possibility that you can get your trophy animal, basically. Um, surveillance studies is an, um, an area that I'm uh, working on as such, um, although I, I think it is important. Um, but it does raise a lot of questions about what it means to, for instance, particularly with the life cycle tracking, um, understand organisms as something that might be amenable to being studied throughout their lifetime. What's also interesting, and I didn't touch on it um, in the talk today, is that the, tack the, tragging and the, um, the, the um, tracking and the tagging can actually change the way that organisms inhabit their environments. So there is a small scientific literature on that as well um, to look at the ways in which you know, carrying around a kind of um, sensor tag can alter people's way, um, organisms' ways of being in their environment. I think also your point about value and, and, and humans knowing best is an important one. Um, how do we kind of decide, um, and you might want to pick up on that, um, what kinds of values are, um, and this gets back to the otter, I quite like the otter example, um, how do we know best what is best for the otter? Is it through... Um, tracking the otter um, and understanding the decisions that we think it's making in relation to feeding and mating and so on, that might give rise to interesting uh, policy and practice for preserving habitat, as I've, I've mentioned earlier, um, or it might, might actually give rise to our thinking that we know best because we've scientifically mapped the problem and have all the data and, and making the most informed decision. But in that process um, of assuming that we know best can also potentially miss things. So, Sure. Um, I'll just pick up on the first gentleman's point there. Um, I completely agree. Um, not I mean, what I've said about nature, whatever that is, like a natural place, like a woodland, could apply just as well to um, an obviously urban environment. You know, somebody could say that you know London or New York is part of who they are, or a particular house is part of who they are, whatever. So I completely agree. It's not restricted to, you know, the David Attenborough said part of the world, right? Um, however, nonetheless, I think it's important that, you know, when uh, organisations like DEFRA, like the Environmental Protection Agency, are trying to assess the value of different places to us, different, you know, more or less natural places, that they take into account sorts of values that aren't instrumental, that um, require, that are constitutive, for instance. 
So basically, yeah, I agree. Other questions? This gentleman here. Thank you very much. I was very interested in what you said about um, preservation of forests and woodlands. Um, I, thinking over this, I, I, I feel that um, we have um, a literal habitat, but we also have a habitat of the mind. And um, it is, I'm sure you're right, it is all bound up with identity. Um, it's also partly uh, bound up with experience and it's bound up with memory and so if we uh, live in a country where there is a certain amount of forest or green fields we assume that confers a sort of identity upon us uh, for example if you were to parachute in let's say a desert into the midst of Buckinghamshire um, people might go to it initially out of curiosity they wouldn't necessarily feel at home there unless they happen to be Bedouins who'd sort of flown in to Heathrow. Um, and, you know, humans, by and large, don't <coughs> lose their habitat, except possibly through war. Uh, you might live by the sea where the coast is eroding, or you might be in a river valley which is, becomes prone to flooding, you have to move. Um, but whereas you were talking about the birds altering their flight path and, and looking for fresh habitats. Now, struck me, of course, their identity comes also from where they live. So if they're changing their abode, in a sense, they are changing their identity. Now, are they aware of this? What happened, well, you know, what's the polar bear thinking when it's, you know, it's going out on the ice floe and it sees it's all broken up and thinking, well, I'm going to have a real tough few weeks looking for something. Uh, does this matter? I mean, what is the relationship between our feelings, which can be very complicated, and an animal's? I leave you with that. My word, Jennifer? <laughs> 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 the relationship between identity and environment. Yes. Um, well, I mean, there's a, again, this I mean, extremely complicated in, in the case of humans, definitely. And, um, I mean, you mentioned uh, memory, and uh, Simon Sharma's book, Landscape and Memory, is a great, I mean, it's a huge book for a start. It's a fantastic account of some of those relations. I think it's really interesting, the um, idea that something similar is going on with animals, that the, you know, the, go back to the otter, right, the fast-flowing river isn't simply useful for the otter, but is some sense part of what the otter is. I haven't thought about that enough, well, actually. I don't know whether that will... That will fly. But I think that's an interesting thought. I think it's worth following up. Thank you. Yeah, no, absolutely, and, and not to bang on about Whitehead all night, but um, he has a, a notion of the subject superject, um, which is that there is no subject without world, which is superject. Um, and very much the kind of world that you're in is forming who you are as a subject. Um, and this could be discussed in relation to organisms very much and their habitats, which are essential to the way that they are in the world and what that world is. But I would say that humans do actually lose their, their habitat all the time. Um, 
landscapes are shifting, development occurs, people might um, you know, lose their home for all kinds of reasons. Um, and those worlds, as they shift, are also um, causing shifts in the kinds of subjects that are then in the world. Um, but I like very much that notion of parachuting a desert in um, as a kind of experiment in subjects and superjacks to see what kinds of subjects would then emerge if the, the home counties suddenly became uh, the Sahara. So. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So do you think it would be fair to say that then the, the nature of the human is changing all the time as its environment changes? Yeah, I mean, I would say absolutely. And, you know, you can see that occurring, um, as you've mentioned, in all kinds of locations in different ways, um, perhaps in a kind of Western, relatively urbanized context. We take for granted that there's a certain kind of stability to um, our habitats um, and don't even see them as habitats as such. Um, although there's a whole interesting area in urban ecologies that I think could probably challenge that notion. Um, you know, so it potentially gives rise to this um, question of back to what kinds of um, humans are we if there is a kind of diminishment of certain kinds of values, certain kinds of organisms. And I always think um, Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep is a really good kind of example of that because that's a world um, in which there are no uh, animals, only sort of electric pets. Um, there might be an animal sort of mythically on the black market somewhere, um, but there are no uh, organisms as such that people um, have contact with, and this very much informs the kind of uh, humans that they are. So I think that could play out in all kinds of speculative registers um, as a sort of provocation to think about the worlds that we're making. Hello there. Um, I had a quick question. There's one example recently where a value has been um, sort of assigned something, and that is rhino horn and the sort of global ivory trade. Um, and obviously parts of Southeast Asia at the moment attribute a huge value to it medicinally, um, financially, whatever else. If you look at the population of the world as stewards of the earth, who is ultimately responsible and who should be accountable for the fact that poaching still happens on such a large scale? Well, I, I must There's admit, a I'm, not, I'm not an advocate of the stewardship position. That's my, I mean, it's something I'm, you know, yeah. I'm open to. Oh, my word, I, I don't know. Who, who should be, you mean like, a, like an international agency should be enforcing some sort of international... Well, law? it's, there are obviously criminal gangs that are actually doing the poaching, but should society at large be, I don't know, it's the fact that it's still being, I guess, allowed to happen. I think it's a, yeah, it's a terrible thing. I'm not sure who would, I think I'd need to know more about environmental law and... Uh, environmental politics to, to be able to answer that one. Yeah. Jennifer, is that your... Do you, do you have more to say about that? Um, well, poaching is not my area, but I think if we were to generalise um, a bit the, the question, um, the notion of accountability is, is really a kind of key one. So how do you identify environmental problems and um, understand who the actors might be um, in sort of creating the problem and or addressing the problem. Uh, in that respect, I would say that society at large as a, an entity is probably not um, a very workable um, 
unit for thinking about accountability, but it does give rise to the question of what then might be the actors or entities that we could look out at as um, being ways of thinking about accountability. And in this case, you know, there are a whole number of uh, forces at play having to do with development, um, having to do with people trying to make a living when traditional ways of life are changing, having to do with, um, you know, black trade and the circulation um, within particular economies of um, these materials, uh, potentially, you know, borders where a blind eye is turned. So if you were to do a map of uh, potential entities of accountability, you know, that might be one way to begin to unfold that, that problem and think about different ways of encountering it. I was very interested in your suggestion of constitutive value and you can see how that can work for British people in relation to British forests but the problem is now with globalisation the effects that we have on environments very far away from us and perhaps even more so the ones which don't hit the headlines or are not particularly photogenic you know, such as the rainforests. And I was also very interested in the idea of citizen science and I'm wondering whether perhaps one way forward might be, in the same way that citizen science in this country has you know, created a kind of, at least a fad of interest in uh, bird life and bird conservation, um, perhaps this tracking means might be a way where people living in urban environments might become interested in tracking animals and being interested in ecosystems through their screens, through their computers, maybe even through, through social media, because that might be well, some way where this very distant um, phenomenon could become something that is part of themselves, part of their lives. Do you want to answer the first part? Yeah, sure, yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I, I completely agree. The, um, I mean, if I, if I had more time, I'd say there's certainly a danger, right, in, um, uh, you know, with claims that a particular wood is you know, part of who you are. And, and it's, I mean, it's very close to nimbyism. It's also, I mean, it also threatens, doesn't it? Um, I mean, it, in some cases, we can be very, very concerned about you know, the woods that we cherish and love and that we know well and that mean something to us while coldly detached from places in other parts of the world that are being exploited in order to bring us cheap goods. Right? So... I don't think I, think, I think you have to look at claims of constitutive value with a, with a critical eye, especially if you remember, I mean, some of the claims there were things like, you know, it's part of the English identity, and so on and so forth. Well, for obvious reasons, right, you need to look critically at that kind of claim. And the mere fact that, you know, a wood has constitutive value for somebody because he or she perceives it as being part of their status as an Englishman or Englishwoman, that isn't enough to show that it has value in some wider sense. So I think you have to look at these things critically. Um, yeah, so thanks. Yeah, I, I agree with that point. Yeah, on the point of um, citizen science, and that's what we're studying in this five-year uh, research project, but we're looking specifically at citizen sensing. So um, exactly this question of how environmental monitoring technologies can help people understand their environments um, and potentially become more engaged in environmental problems, um, be better environmental citizens, 
um, and looking at that empirically. So in the first instance, we're actually looking at air pollution monitoring um, to understand how having real-time displays of air pollution levels um, and gathering data over time might help people understand their air quality um, and to try to address um, industry problems potentially. Um, I mean, I think it is interesting because it can give rise to particular kinds of engagement and it can actually um, inform and support that engagement, as you suggested, um, you know, by looking at you know, nature through your screen effectively, you, you might have a particular kind of engagement. But at the same time, it is a very particular way of understanding environmental problems, which is not without its problems in the case of citizen sensing. So um, that's what we're looking at as well. What does it mean? And this gets back to the kind of thesis that I put forward in the talk tonight. What does it mean to understand environments as a problem of data collection? Um, and this, is, this happens very much with pollution sensing. So you know, if you collect all kinds of data about the pollution in your air, you'll uh, be more informed um, and more aware as an environmental citizen. But then there is a potential problem that you have all of this data and you're not able to do anything with it. Um, and this potentially you could see as a problem of environmental science more generally, which is largely a problem of um, envir um, collecting environmental data and often not having um, the, the political tools to do anything with that data. And I think that's the problem of climate change on, on many levels, which you know, we have all of this data, all of this information about climate change, uh, but it's very difficult then to translate that into political circuits um, in order to actually do something about climate change. So I think there are interesting um, opportunities as well as challenges for what it means to engage uh, in those registers. Well, it seems like you've just touched on the on the crux of, of any you know the, the question of should we be stewards? It's in, invariably it's going to um, come down to um, the economics versus the sustainability of the of the situation. I mean, whether whether it be hydraulic fracturing or um, pollution or um, what I consider to be a, major, a, a really a major, uh, uh, <coughs> somewhat invisible dilemma if, or catastrophe, perhaps, is uh, food production. I mean, I, I, recently I've watched something on YouTube by someone who's actually delved into this scientist, and he was saying people go on and on about carbon emissions, but the, um, uh, the, so much of the evidence indicates that lo that food production. Is, is, is as much of a, a cause of environmental de de deterioration as as as, um, as fossil fuels, but you know each and every time this issue comes up, it's it's the what do, you, do people's livelihoods are at stake. So the people at the top, the people that own the the, the uh, energy companies, they and they, they also fund the media and politicians. We all know that. So it's, they're, they're fighting against any type of amelioration. And the people at the bottom who, who are dependent on low-wage low jobs, they're, they're not going to be on the side of stewardship. Frame it as a question. Yeah. So I'm saying, well, okay, the question is, how can you possibly be optimistic in any sense that stewardship is going to win the day rather than being a rational pessimist and, and, and see that a, a catastrophe will occur, and that is the only possible way people will ever get any kind of um, insight into the, the, the value of the earth. 
Well, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I share your pessimism about the climate. I mean, because we've already um, tied in to the change, because the, the, <laughs> the, the carbon emissions, for example, that are going to result in climate change over the next few decades already happened. There's nothing we can do about them. Um, so in that case, I'm a pessimist. Um, loss of endangered species, loss of species, is thoroughly depressing. Um, uh, there is a problem, though, isn't there, in trying to motivate people to support environmental causes. Because often, you know, they're just seen as kind of green killjoys. So it's good to, I mean, one, I suppose, I'm, I'm not that fond of the ecosystem services approach, but one good thing about it is that um, a lot of the activists, a lot of the people who use that kind of approach and talk in that kind of way are quite optimistic in their rhetoric. Good for business, good for nature, let's, uh, let's all be environmentalists. And there's something to be said for that, right? I mean, um, but I mean, in my, you know, quiet moments, sitting reading the latest statistics about species lost or, or you know, whatever, yeah, like you, I'm a pessimist. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's a tricky one. Um, I'd probably say, well, let's go beyond the false dichotomy potentially of optimism and pessimism and um, just ask how we're going to get on in, in the new worlds that are, that are emerging. Um, and I think, you know, I, and I take your point, I think it's an important one, but, you know, we often end up in this space of, you know, being optimistic and ending up with these... Um, potentially rather uh, dubious sustainability scenarios where, you know, we can have economic growth as well as save the planet. It's a thing I've, I've written about a bit. I think, you know, those are quite um, problematic scenarios. Um, but rather than be optimistic or pessimistic, I think it's a, it's a matter of how we're, we're kind of getting on um, in the world. And, and to get to your question about, or your point about food production, it's a really... Um, sort of poignant problem in a sense of uh, how will we continue to um, generate enough food or produce enough food to feed a kind of ever-expanding um, population whilst, you know, having a kind of um, biodiversity loss, extinction, um, and climate change is one a kind of indicator or marker to keep your carbon emissions down for thinking about environmental stewardship, for instance. Um, but there are many more ways in which there are environmental problems uh, and maybe these are kind of opportunities as well to think about, you know, how we might want to shift our ways of, of, of um, being in the world. So, I mean, I would, rather than kind of being optimistic or pessimistic, I would say um, what I tend to do is adopt a sort of speculative register of thinking about the kinds of practices that we might try to invent um, to uh, address or encounter these problems and know that we'll probably always fall short but it's still uh, worth uh, trying to um, think of these inventive scenarios. Uh, I appreciated the references to Whitehead and Kongiem, and I think they're really important. Uh, their legacy is important to think about these issues, and I'm sure if Claire Colbrook was here, she would have, you know, she's working in that kind of tradition, she, and she would have probably mentioned the term Anthropocene, uh, which kind of works on displacing human human privilege and humanistic methods like value and measuring. They all seem 
they all seem to me to be too too humanistic to to address these issues even um, so yeah I mean what would you say to that 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 these that these kinds of methods are outdated in a way or they're not appropriate anymore in in the face of what's being called the Anthropocene respond to it at least, yeah. I, I, in, I mean, the world of philosophy is a uh, environment, environmental philosophy is dominated by environmental ethics. In environmental ethics, the primary question is always, you know, what, what duties do we have to nature? What, what sorts of values do different parts of, you know, the non-human world have? Get a debate about nature again. But, um, uh, like you, I mean, I, I worry that maybe um, what we really need to do is less kind of come up with new values for the world or discover new values, but to reorientate our understanding of reality. And I think that's where thinkers like Alfred North Whitehead are particularly um, valuable, actually. Because what Whitehead does, although he does talk about value, right, but in a completely, you know, to me, bears very little resemblance to what we call value. What Whitehead was doing was just setting out an entire new philosophy of nature, of course, as you know, right? And um, I think that might be um, a, a deeper kind of response to these sorts of issues. Um, it's also going to be quite a long-term one, I guess, if you're thinking about any kind of societal change. Um, so, yeah, I would... I would um, if I was... Looking forward to a time like a century from now when you know maybe we're making some progress with these problems, then I, I'd like to think about ways that we could change or transform our, our understanding of what the world is and not just the values it contains. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good point. If you look at Whitehead's work, he's not discarding these concepts wholesale, but he's just entirely flipping them on their head. And so he can talk about value as relevance um, what's relevant for an organism, and how do particular attachments of organisms in their worlds um, express, as a term he would use, forms of relevance. Uh, and I think that that's a kind of interesting way in which he's not just kind of blasting um, the landscape, but actually artfully repurposing terms and situating his work within a kind of set of uh, philosophical traditions, um, but completely altering it so that um, it gives rise to different ways of thinking about relationality, which is what I guess the Anthropocene um, as a concept, however troubled it is, um, as has been taken up, is, is trying to do. It's trying to invent new modes of relationality. So I think we could still talk about measure, but um, as the kind of tracking um, sensor technology suggests, then um, how might we think about organisms as taking measure of their environments, and how does that kind of give cause to rethink what counts as measuring, for instance? I just want to respond very briefly to that in terms of Claire's work, actually, because Claire talks about developing an ethics without an ethos. So the idea of starting with the radically inhuman in some kind of way. And, and I guess what's interesting about the Anthropocene in this context is that it's, it's a figure of radical paradox because it's a figure which seems to be situating the, the, the human as a kind of geological force, but also the human as impotent in some way, that we seem to be unable to unify our resources in order to respond to the destruction that humans have caused. Um, 
And I think also one of the things that's happened, I mean, I mean um, I've written a bit about the figure of Gaia and, and the kind of, uh, the way that the Anthropocene has in something has caused us to return to really reactionary and conservative symbolism. Um, so I think, I, I suppose, the, the value of Claire's work here is that it shows this kind of duality of, of the figure of the Anthropocene as showing how humans are somehow always coming back to their own anthropocentrism whilst, um, again, trying to, trying to grasp towards kind of new figures of relationality, I mm -hmm. suppose. Okay, any other questions? I think there's a lady here. Thank you. Thank you both so much for your talks. Um, I just wanted to ask, what is it that made you decide to study the environment to this extent? Like, was it something in Buddhism, for example, that motivated you to um, dedicate your life to caring for the environment? Because I think that's quite interesting. Like, what intrinsic values do we have that make us do things? Um, well, uh, and I didn't, I didn't learn about Buddhism until I was, I was quite a bit older, actually. So I think it was way back when I was um, very young. I lived in a house with a big garden, owned a dog, and used to go out walking around sort of in the woods with um, dogs. But I think that's that's I think that's significant, isn't it? Because I think people who do care a lot about nature often develop that kind of concern when they're very young. And I think there is some there is some there is some research on that as well, isn't there? So um, I think that is significant. I think one of the reasons I was kind of attracted to working on Buddhism is that uh, so um, uh, many uh, Buddhist writings are more congenial to environmental ethics than uh, you know, writings of some other religions. Um, I guess I, I'll have to confess, I also grew up in the backwoods of northern Wisconsin, so <laughs> um, which is a state where a lot of envir famous environmentalists have um, come from, so Aldo Leopold, John Muir, Scottish American, and so on. Um, and I think it probably does have a considerable influence um, when you grow up in a context that is um, potentially kind of popping with life, as it were. Um, I guess that's also why you see these very popular campaigns to get kids outdoors, um, because when they grow up in, you know, sort of relatively sanitized contexts indoors, looking at screens all the time, they um, potentially have uh, less appreciation, but um, also less kind of understanding of uh, sort of environmental processes. So, you know, not able to kind of look in an informed way at, at what's going on around them. Thank you very much. Could you think it will be a hypothesis of James Lovelock? Uh, is that relevant? It is a powerful concept, and uh, I've been like your views on that. The car, James Lovelock, as you probably know, the car concept, uh, um, and it's a, 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 you know relevant to what we've been discussing. Sure. Um, well, um, so Gaia, um, I mean, I'm sure you all didn't know about it, but um, so Lovelock uh, hypothesised that the the planet Earth functions as something like a superorganism, and it has all sorts of homeostatic uh, systems within it which serve to keep, you know, a certain um, 
key conditions constant. You know, like, um, atmospheric pressure, things like that. Yes. Um, so how would that how would that relate to ethics? Um, I I guess um, you couldn't. Have, I mean, I wonder whether you could have duties to Gaia, whether Gaia is the sort of thing that you could actually have duties to. Um, because you certainly can have duties to individual organisms, can't you? Um, for example, animals. And if Gaia, if the planet Earth was actually a superorganism, then perhaps you could have actual duties to it, as you could have duties to a dog or a cat or a donkey. Um, I worry, however, a little bit about the Gaia because if Gaia is like an organism, then presumably it can, as an organism can, actually absorb and sustain a certain amount of damage before its um, key homeostatic functions are undermined. So um, I worry that maybe thinking in terms of Gaia could maybe seen as giving some people license for uh, environmentally destructive behaviour because Gaia will handle it. I, mean, I think also the interesting thing about Gaia is that Lovelock suggests that humans are disturbing the balance, um, and that becomes a kind of call to duty, as it were. Um, and it's, it's a kind of tricky concept because then it very much depends on this notion of homeostatic um, balance as something that we should be working to preserve, um, which in a way, I mean, I've been struck when I've read Lovelock's text, is a very cybernetic understanding of um, environments, and there's a whole set of literatures about the ways in which cybernetics have informed um, ecology, as well as a popular, um, was it BBC program, All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace, if you've seen that program. I'm sure it's available online. Um, but it's a kind of uh, investigation of the way in which particular information, uh, computational way of uh, understanding systems has moved uh, not just from uh, ballistics and military applications in the court case of Norbert Wiener, um, but into um, all forms of systems thinking. Um, so systems thinking with economies, ecologies, and more. And so Lovelock is very much developing a cybernetic understanding of Gaia as a superorganism that is, uh, you know, in a kind of usual homeostatic balance, but is something that humans are then disturbing. Whether we want to work with a cybernetic uh, logic um, or figure informing our understanding of environments and environmental disturbance, I think is, is a question, um, and a lot of people have then suggested that balance may not be the best way to understand uh, environments or sustainability, um, but other registers might be uh, more uh, interesting or appropriate. Okay, I think we have run out of time. Um, I'd like to thank you all for coming. Thank you for your engaging questions. And I'd like you to join me in thanking Simon and Jeff.